And as you're taking your seat there, go ahead and grab your Bible and open up to Romans chapter 1. We're continuing to make our way through the first chapter of Romans in our new series, Not Ashamed. And as you're getting yourself situated, I want to begin by asking you a question. Um, I wonder if you've ever had this experience. Have you ever um, maybe sat through a meeting or an event or a conference? I mean, you choose it, and you get to the end, and you wondered exactly what just happened. You're, you're uncertain about why you were actually there, what was actually communicated, and what the purpose of the meeting or event was actually all about. Confused because everything kind of seems maybe disjointed. Doesn't seem like it's meshed together very well. The truth is that a good leader sets the agenda up front, and a good agenda tells you what you are doing, where you are going, and in effect, a good agenda, it actually gives clarity of direction in order to increase both understanding and more than likely participation. It makes sure that everybody is on the same page, moving in the same direction, and that's essentially what Paul is doing right here as he begins this letter to the Romans, as he anchors them in their identity in the gospel, he now sets a gospel agenda for them that will continue to drive them forward and will become really the bones of the rest of this epistle. Make no mistake about it. Paul's ministry agenda is given in order to give clarity of direction. It is given to increase our understanding of the gospel, and it is given in order to increase our participation in gospel ministry. Like I said last week, Paul began by reminding the Roman believers and us by extension of their gospel identity. Now he wants to call them to a gospel unity. That's his agenda. A gospel unity that rallies around our common faith. And you'll notice that he pulls us back into this common faith in very strategic ways. Look at what he says beginning in verse 8. We'll read to verse 15. Paul says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I might reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. In the church, there can be much that we do not have in common, but it is what we 
do have in common that forges deep unity and, by extension, effective ministry. Paul points this out in four ways that I want to draw to your attention this morning. First, we share a common faith that spreads our message. Verse 8, Paul begins by first saying, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Paul begins, like he normally does in a lot of his letters, by simply giving thanks to God. He recognizes that all that's taking place is a result of God's mercy and His grace and His kindness. And in one sense, what we have in front of us here is actually a prayer of Paul, but it's a little bit more than that. I mean, it doesn't exactly read like a prayer. Paul is kind of dropping all kinds of content and information and even encouragement and reminders and help for the believers that he's writing to. He's kind of preach praying, if you know what I mean. You know those people, right, who, who are praying, but then they kind of uh, uh, devolve into a little mini sermon in the midst of their preaching, or praying, sorry. It's kind of what Paul's doing here. And in Paul's apostolic ministry, preaching and praying go together. The two things cannot be separated. He assures the believers here that even though most of them are unknown to him personally, consider for a moment, Paul had never visited Rome. He, he doesn't know these believers personally. He didn't plant these churches. And yet he assures them that he thanks God for them. And not only that, that he prays for them. He intercedes for them constantly. Notice in verse 8, I thank my God for all of you, he says. Notice in verse 9, that without ceasing, I mention you. Look at verse 10, always in my prayers. Paul is a praying man. He understands the importance and the power of prayer, and he teaches us in this moment at least two things. First is this, it's often been said that the prayer, that prayer, excuse me, is our greatest work. Many of us focus on our preparation, we focus on our execution of certain details or events in our life, even in the Christian faith, but what Paul draws our attention to is this, that of utmost importance is prayer in the life of a believer. Paul is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's been given a unique and special ministry. He has been given unique and special gifts of the Spirit of God, and yet what he identifies for us is that prayer is supreme in his own life and ministry. Paul knew that his effectiveness in ministry was in large part determined by his diligence in prayer. E.M. Bounds, who has written extensively on the topic of prayer, says this. He says, prayer is the language of a man burdened with a sense of need. Prayer puts God's work in his hands and keeps it there. He says this also, talking to men for God is a great thing, but talking to God for men is greater still. Prayerless ministry is powerless ministry. Let me frame this in a way that may be a little more applicable to your own personal life. A prayerless Christian is a powerless Christian. Second, we learn this from Paul here, that prayer produces gospel unity. Isn't it incredible that Paul writes here as if he's known these believers for years? I mean, if, if you didn't know, if I hadn't told you that Paul had never been to Rome, you would read this introduction and assume, man, these must be like Paul's best friends. He must know these people incredibly well. But that's 
actually the exact opposite. He's never met them. But it feels this way because his heart is deeply united to their hearts. He has spent, consider this, countless moments, according to his own testimony in these verses, with unceasing prayer, countless moments, thinking about them, thanking God for them, interceding on their behalf, praying for their every need. I think we can learn from this church that one of the surest and quickest ways to forge gospel unity in the church is to pray for one another and to pray with one another. This is one of the reasons we do a monthly prayer and praise meeting. This is one of the reasons why we focus so much in our small group ministry on prayer, because in those moments, not only are we accessing the power of God, we are forging deep unity, gospel unity amongst one another. But Paul thanks God in a very specific way here. Notice what he goes on to say. He thanks God for all of you through Christ Jesus because your faith, he says, is proclaimed in all the world. Paul is deeply grateful to God that they are known throughout the entire believing world for their faith. Now, this may be some apostolic hyperbole, but Paul's point is clear. Paul is saying, listen, I didn't plant you, I don't know you, but here's what I know about you. Your faith, your reputation for your faith is being spread across the believing world. All of the churches in the first century have heard about your faith. The Roman believers had clearly gained a reputation for their faith. And here's why Paul rejoices in this and thanks God so much. Because as the reputation of their faith spreads across the world, so too does the message of faith in Jesus Christ. I love this because it's, it's made me think a little bit about myself, about our church, and I hope it makes you think a little bit about yourself this morning. You see, every one of us is known for something maybe for multiple things. And that's not good, bad, or neutral. It just is. We all have certain things that we are known for, but the question is, what are the things that we are known for? What are the things that we are most known for? Let me frame it like this. What kind of reputation do you have? How do people define and describe who you are? What makes you you? Let me get a le level deeper here. How about this? Are you known for your faith? In a time when it's, it's not really popular to advertise our faith, it's important to ask if we have become ashamed of our faith. If we would much rather be known for all kinds of different things, things we've accomplished, things we do, or if we want to be known for what's been done for us through Jesus Christ. If you think it's hard now, by the way, to advertise your faith, it doesn't actually even come close to what these believers were experiencing in the first century church in Rome. You see, the gospel should make God known, but it should also make us known. Every church is known for something. Every believer is known for something. And we want to make sure we are known for the right things. You see, every believer in every church should be known by our affection for and allegiance to Jesus Christ as Lord. We should be known, in other words, by our master and by our message. 
It should not be uncommon in your life for people to think of you or refer to you as a Christian. It should not be uncommon for people to uh, uh, label you as religious or somebody who attends church. In fact, I would go so far as to say that if nobody knows this about you, if nobody thinks of this about you, you're probably, no, you are not being obedient to the commands of the Lord Jesus Christ. Living the gospel and sharing the gospel are not optional in the Christian life. And if you do this faithfully, you will forge a reputation. If, if your heart beats for Jesus Christ, if your heart bleeds the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will forge a reputation of faith in Jesus Christ. And we are supposed to be, consider this Christians, we are supposed to be salt and light in this world. We are supposed to be a city that is set upon a hill. And this reputation may not be one that is appreciated by the world at all times, but that does not matter if it is approved by God. We are called by God to let our light shine before others so that they may see our good deeds and give glory to our Father in heaven. And in the first century, Christians were already standing out amongst the masses in the midst of their culture, not simply because their religion was different, but because they were different. Secondly, notice this, that we share a common faith that stirs our affections. In verses 9 and 10, here we get a, a glimpse of the heart of the apostle Paul for these believers. He says, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that, listen, here it is, that somehow by God's will I may now at least succeed in coming to you. Do you see his affection for the people of God? And that affection for the people of God is driven by his overwhelming affection for God himself. But almost in passing there in verse 9, Paul designated God as the one whom he served with his whole heart. Did you notice that? With his whole spirit, those two terms are synonymous in the New Testament. He says, I, I serve God with, with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. And this is just a beautiful reminder that real faith results in total surrender. Paul's talking about his whole life bowed down to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Paul's service stemmed from a wholehearted commitment to God in his life. It was not simply a duty but a privilege for Paul. Some translators actually take this, this word for service, to serve God here, in the equally acceptable sense of worship. These two terms are in many ways synonymous in the New Testament, because to serve God is worship, and to worship is to serve. Paul will pick up that theme later in Romans chapter 12 when he talks about our lives being a, a living sacrifice unto God, a spiritual act of worship. And worship, you see, is about the affections of our heart. And here, Paul's unceasing prayer for the Romans has a more personal focus. Do you see that there? His own desire to minister personally to them. He's eager for them to know his heartfelt affection for them and his desire to be with them face to face. Paul says, I'm going to write this letter to you, but this is nothing compared to being with you face to face. My heart longs to be in your presence with you. 
And the sincerity of these affections are seen and demonstrated by the oath he takes here. For God is my witness, he says. Again, you read this and you're thinking, man, Paul must have had some really great friendships with these people to pray like this and to feel like this for them. No. We, we often wrongly believe that genuine affection for others is dependent upon deeply knowing them. I want to say that again because this is a really, really important point. We often wrongly believe that genuine affection for other people is dependent upon deeply knowing them. Paul's affection for them was not dependent upon, listen, the depth of the relationship, but the source of the relationship. They had gospel unity. They had a shared, a common faith, and that is what stirs gospel affections in the heart of God's people. That affection causes him to constantly pray for them because you want to know what love does? Love causes us to care for people. You love, let me say this, what or who you pray for. You pray for that whom you love or what you love. And notice this, that affection causes him to long to be with them because, listen, loved ones, listen, you gather with those whom you love. And and this is seen, this, this, this heartfelt affection is seen and expressed in his willingness to sacrifice for them. Now, that, that's not readily apparent when you read this text, but sacrifice bleeds out of these passages. Can you just consider this for a moment? Remember that Paul is, is hauled up. He's waiting for the winter season to finish so he can sail his way towards them. For Paul to get to Rome was an immense undertaking. He's going to have to travel hundreds of miles over multiple weeks, risking his life, spending his money, his time, and his energy. But all of this demonstrates in powerful ways the kind of affection he has for these believers. You know, over the years, um, some of our, our closest and dearest friends have traveled not only across Canada but across the U.S. to come and visit with us and our family. And we've done likewise over the years. We've traveled across Canada and across the U.S. and sometimes to other continents to visit people that we, we know and we love and have these really sweet friendships with. And one of the things that, that makes those friendships so sweet is the willingness to make those kind of sacrifices. To, to, to be with people who've traveled that kind of a distance actually endears your heart to them in unique ways, doesn't it? And doesn't it speak volumes of their affection to you when you're sitting there and you're like, man, I can't believe you came all this way to visit me. You spent all this money and all this time and energy to come and be with us. What a blessing. By the way, th- this is regularly the kind of message that is expressed by people in other countries um, when we go to do missions work. Over the years, when I've had the opportunity to go both to Nepal, to Haiti, to Romania, many of you have had this experience too, one of the things that blesses people in other countries, especially other believers, is the fact that you made this journey, you paid all of this money, you brought all of these resources, and you would spend all of this time to make an investment in them. And then I've had people over the years in tears just thanking God and praising God that we, we as a church would be willing to make these kind of sacrifices for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ and for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, it's the level of sacrifice that often demonstrates the level of affection. 
and that forges deeper intimacy in relationships. Make no mistake about it, relationships require sacrifice. This is, by the way, one of the reasons why we believe that being present together physically is far better and more important than being gathered together virtually. Now, I want to just take a moment to say that if you are watching online, I'm going to look right at the camera so you feel like I'm just reaching into your soul right now. We are so thankful for you. And there are a multitude of reasons why you may be at home watching this. Maybe you're sick. Maybe you're a shut-in. Maybe circumstances in life just didn't allow you to be able to, to get out the door this morning, and that's fine. Maybe in this COVID season, there are legitimate reasons why you can't be here and you actually need to. It's wise for you to stay home to protect yourself or others. And so I just want to say that very clearly. Maybe you're in another part of the world watching this, and this is something that's supplemental to the time that you would normally spend with your own church family. And all of that is good and right, and that's perfectly legitimate, but we need to be very clear here. We don't believe, and we've said this all along, that virtual services, online services, are anywhere close to the equivalent of physically gathering with God's people. They're not even close. They are light years apart. And one of the main reasons why virtual is lesser than in-person is because virtual requires little to no sacrifice, right? I mean, it's so easy. We can roll out of bed in our pajamas. We can sit down and watch a service. We can even get up and leave and nobody will even know. Go make another coffee. Maybe take another quick nap. Depends how bad the preaching is. But listen, more than the sacrifice of getting here, it requires no sacrifice relationally, right? You don't have to get up and serve anybody. You don't have to bless anybody. You don't have to care for anybody. You don't have to be with anybody. Like, this is an introvert's dream right now, but I'm trying to tell you right now, it is not the biblical perspective. We make efforts, loved ones, listen, we make efforts to be with one another. On Sunday mornings, we make efforts to be with one another, right? right? I, I know we do. I know many of you are here today and you're still like, oh Lord, forgive me for this morning. Because you tried to wrangle your kids, you tried to get them all fed, you tried to get them all cleaned up and then get yourself cleaned up and look somewhat presentable, and you battled your way to church. And you walked in the door hoping that you didn't look as chaotic and messy as you felt inside. You made a sacrifice to get to be with God's people. You make a sacrifice when you do small group ministry, right? You, you make a sacrifice. If you're a small group leader, I'm going to give some of you who are not leaders a window into the life of a small group leader. That two hours before small group is like hell week for a Navy SEAL. It is some of the most intense times of sanctification or laws of sanctification that a small group leader experiences all week long, especially if they have young kids. They pour themselves out to get the place clean, to get their kids fed, to get their kids in bed, and then when they come back down the stairs to put them back in bed. They clean their house, they cook meals. And by the way, this applies to all of you who are hosting and being hospitable to others. They make coffee or cookies or pour out bags of chips that they had to run to the store to get last minute because they forgot. 
You see my point? We spend ourselves to serve one another and bless one another. And then when everybody leaves the house, we do the dishes and we fall into bed, right? And if you're going to a small group, you listen, you make a sacrifice. This is, this is what, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be saying some things very strongly here. This is why you, you hear the background of all the people who are getting ready to serve you. By the way, that's not to say anything about the study and the preparation they put in all week or, or the prayer that they put in all week for your soul. And this is why it is an unacceptable excuse to say, I'm too tired. Join the club. We make sacrifices to have what we have, to do what we do. And it requires all of us to sacrifice something, to get out the door, to be with one another, and then sacrifice our time, our our money, our resources, our talents. And this is what God calls us to. This is how we forge gospel unity as we share our common faith. It's exhausting at times, but let me tell you, it is life-giving. There is no intimacy in relationships without sacrifice. In the sacrifice, we are making a statement. We are declaring to one another, listen, I love you. You're worth the cost. You're worth the effort. You're worth the time. You're worth all of this energy. You see, this, friends, is is gospel unity, for it is exactly how God has united us to himself through his Son. God, through Jesus Christ, gave himself for us. And his cost was so much greater. His love is so much deeper. And because of his sacrifice, the intimacy that we get to experience with God is so much sweeter. And his affection for us, his love for us, it stirs our affection for him if we would pause and think about it and meditate upon it. And as a result, it stirs our affection for all those whom he has purchased by his blood and are members of his household. For those of you who in here who are sacrificing so much and you're tired, do not grow weary in doing good. There are seasons to pause and rest and recover, but do not grow weary in doing good. God sees your sacrificial service. God cares, God approves, and God will bless. Look to the gospel of Jesus Christ and stir your affections for God once more. And for those of you who are longing for this kind of community, maybe it's time for you to hear this. It's time to make the sacrifice so you can experience and enjoy it. We share a common faith that stirs our affections. And third, we share a common faith that strengthens our church. You see, it's not simply about the intimacy in our relationships. It's about the byproduct in many ways of that as well. And in verse 11 through 12, listen to what Paul says. Again, this deep longing, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, look at this, to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul longed to be together with these believers. One of the longings of his soul was to be with them and to, he says, impart some spiritual gift to strengthen them. Part of the mission of the gospel is, as we've talked about the last couple of weeks, the maturity of the saints the maturing of the body of Christ. And this is the responsibility, not just of one or two or even a handful of individuals, this is the responsibility and privilege of the entire body of believers. 
Paul points us here towards a mutually encouraging relationship that is centered upon our common faith. Paul says that he longs to be with them so that he might impart some spiritual gifts to them. Now, this is more than likely not speaking specifically of a spiritual gift like you would read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He seems to be referring primarily to the opportunity to be with them in person and specifically to be able to teach them, to strengthen them in the areas that they are spiritually weak or deficient. Some have actually said that his letter, the Roman, a book of Romans, is the means by which he wants to strengthen them. This is the spiritual gift, but he longs to be there with them in person to drive it deep into their hearts, to provide for them further understanding and insight. This, by the way, would be consistent with what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, Maybe you can turn there. I think it's important enough that we turn there quickly. Ephesians chapter 4. And so much of this relates to how Paul understood his, his very specific ministry as an apostle. Paul says this, I'm going I'm to begin in verse 1, just, it's so good because it pairs this idea of this unity and strengthening and also the giftings from God so, so well. And it's Paul who writes this after he had written the book of Romans. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, by the way, Paul would finally make it to Rome one day, um, not, the, not the way he wanted to, but the way, of, the way that God had planned as a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. He urges them, as he writes from prison, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Look at this unity. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when He ascended on high, He led a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. This is referring to the resurrection of Jesus and the exaltation of Jesus. And in saying He ascended, what does it mean? But that He had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He came down first, and then He ascended back up to the right hand of the Father. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens, that He might fill all things. Then notice this, listen. And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. He gave them. They are gifts to the church, listen, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith, there it is, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. And stop there. His concern is that they are increasingly established in their common faith. His goal is to share with them his spiritual insight into the gospel that would make them stronger and healthier. Theologically and biblically speaking, the preaching of God's Word is one of the greatest gifts that the church has been given because of the way God uses it to unify the church and to strengthen the church. A church cannot be stronger than its commitment to faithful biblical preaching. 
But notice this in verse 12. Paul makes it clear that this was not a one-way street. You see, Paul envisioned a time when he would be among the believers, not only to give spiritual edification and encouragement to their souls, but also to receive it from them. He longed to be with them because he knew they had something that he needed. They had something to offer because God had equipped them as well to minister to the souls of the saints. When it comes to the church, we are called to be contributors. Listen, this is important. We're called to be contributors, not just consumers. God is not interested simply in your presence in this place. I hate to break this to you. He's interested in your participation in this place. And you don't gain, listen, isn't this, you don't gain a physical strength by simply walking into a gym, right? Wouldn't that be nice? Hey, look, there's a dumbbell. Now I get biceps. And we don't get strong by simply hearing about what we're supposed to do, right? Even in the gym, just the trainer tells you, you got to go and do this and then hit that machine and do that and rest like that, eat that kind of food, recover like this. It doesn't matter what you hear unless you're willing to do something with it. And in order to strengthen the faith of others, listen, you have to be willing to talk about your faith with others. This is so much of what we're striving to accomplish in, in the life of our church, specifically in our small group ministry. When we sit down and we do accountability with one another, this isn't just a time where we, we gripe about our life's problems or we simply have a, a social club, although a social you know, time is incredibly important, but here's what we're aiming to do. We're aiming to sit down and bless one another by our mutual faith. Here's what God is doing in my life. Here's, here's how, as I've read the scriptures this week, here's how God has instructed my heart. Here's how God has, has corrected my thinking. Here's how God has um, rebuked me, encouraged me, exhorted me, strengthened me, reminded me, blessed me. You see, this is, this is what we're after here. And, and here's the deal. When you share that with another believer, guess what I'm hearing? I'm hearing not only praise God for what he's doing in your life through the power of his word. What I'm hearing is this, man, I need some of that. Man, that's so good for my heart. Now, I can tell you that just as a pastor, listen, as a pastor who has the privilege of heralding God's word and, and, and hopefully seeing people grow as they grab hold of the truth of God's word, one of the greatest blessings I receive is when I hear from you, here's what God's teaching me. Man, here's what God's doing in my life. Here, here's how I'm thriving in the Lord, or, or here's where I'm struggling, but God has been so faithful. There's no greater joy than this than watching the church of Jesus Christ walking in the truth. Your obedience to the faith, your response to the preaching of God's Word and the study of God's Word, you just need to know this, church. Listen, it strengthens my faith. It fuels my faith. And let me press into the gym analogy just a little bit further. Listen, you get what you put in. You get what you put in. God is not looking for consumers. He's looking for contributors. Just take a moment to evaluate where you are on the spectrum of participation. It's been an easy season to lean out, hasn't it? And there's been a lot of people in our church who are doing a lot of serving right now and really stepped it up, and they deserve so much credit for all that they have been faithfully doing. But listen, church, listen, listen. We can't have 10 or 20% of the people doing 80 or 90% of the work. That's not the way God's designed it to be. And God is calling for you to step up, to lean in, 
and to take upon yourself responsibility to be invested in the work of the ministry in this place, to use what God has given you to build up the body of Christ for the maturing of the saints. Our goal in this church, we're not looking at any kind of an 80-20 shift, you know, like if we move from 20% to 80%, we are looking for 100% of God's people participating in the strengthening of our church. That's what we're after. 100% participation. We share a common faith that when taken seriously strengthens the church. Lastly, we share a common faith that summons our souls. Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. He says, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Plans and providence do not always align. Paul had longed to come and be with them. He had felt that summons upon his own soul to go and, and help them and bless them and build them up and to be encouraged by their own faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we don't know exactly why he had been prevented, whether it was Satan or circumstances or the Holy Spirit's divine redirecting or all of the above. But we do know this, that God works providentially through the circumstances of life to carry out His will. Again, God would providentially get Paul to Rome, but it would be in chains. For whatever reason, he was prevented. But that summons on his own soul was clear. Why? Why? Look at what he says. His deepest desire was to be with them and to reap a harvest, both among them and the rest of the Gentiles. And the harvest that he longs to reap is twofold. He longs to see the salvation of sinners, and he longs to see the sanctification of saints. And well, this is specific in one sense to Paul's ministry as he was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. This should not be unique amongst believers. When God plants the gospel in our hearts, He plants a divine desire and duty in our souls. And the desire and duty, they merge into an indivisible pursuit to know Christ and to make Christ known. Look at verse 14, Paul says that he was under obligation to this. He, he says, in effect, I, I, I must pay a gospel debt. I owe the debt to God, but I will pay it out to the Gentiles. It's similar to what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 9, 16. He says, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. It was in his bones. It burned deep within his soul. And he uses two phrases to describe the entire Gentile population, the entire world in effect. He says Greeks and barbarians or Greeks and non-Greeks. He means here those that are under Greco-Roman culture and those that are outside of it, everyone. The wise and the foolish here means those who have intelligence and those who do not, everyone. All races, in all classes, in all the world, this was the burning desire of his heart and of his soul. The truth that all people are sinners before God, by the way, levels the ground for all of humanity. There is no partiality with God. All come with the same need of forgiveness. 
Those who accept the grace of God stand together on even ground. And today, listen, today, if you've walked in here and you have never embraced the Lord Jesus Christ, God invites you today. He is summoning your soul. Come and bow down. Embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. You can repent of your sin and believe in Him today. The gospel is for you. But the gospel is not only for those who are lost. Paul says in verse 15 that he is eager to preach the gospel to believers in Rome. And in this case, you say, why, why did he want to preach the gospel to believers who had already believed the gospel? Well, here, preach the gospel refers to the ongoing work of teaching and discipleship that builds upon initial evangelism. You see, when God summons our souls to believe the gospel, we're not being called to believe and then move past the gospel, but instead to continue to go deeper into the gospel. No teaching of the Word of God can be disconnected from the gospel. As Paul shows us in this epistle to the Romans, there can be no growth apart from the gospel, and we can never exhaust the magnificent depths and riches of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only God's grace in Christ enables sinful people to repent and embrace Christ, to change their ways and reorder their lives according to the gospel. Only the gospel has the power to change lives and change congregations, churches, enabling them to embrace Christ's agenda for the church. Paul's prayer for the church teaches us that God has set a gospel agenda that is grounded in gospel unity. Church, let's grab hold of this agenda and together make it our own, believing that our common faith will spread our message, will stir our affections, will strengthen our church, and will continue to summon our souls. And may God receive all the glory and all the praise for all that He has done and all that He will do. Let's pray. Father, we pray. We pray, Father, that we would experience greater depths of this gospel unity that, God, we would feel it burning in our souls, that we would know the truth of the gospel, but the truth of the gospel would, Lord, bleed down into every nook and cranny of our lives. Fill us now with a desire to live for your glory, to stay on this gospel ministry agenda. God, in our common faith that we share together, we pray, Father, that the gospel unity that we hold dear to would be evidenced in a multitude of ways, Lord, that you would continue to strengthen us, to encourage us, and that you would draw more and more people to your Son. We pray this in his powerful and precious name. Amen.